get your first 10 users. That's the first thing you need to do. Why? Because if you don't have currently, right now, a user on your platform, you have no feedback. You don't know anything. Okay, you did your idea validation, you created a product until a user uses that product and tells you, oh my God, this is crap, or oh my God, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, You don't have any real perspective on what you've done. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. In this episode, Ronnie Dover, CTO at Digma, joins us to share the customer communication models and user interview tactics that can help shape your product. We also cover how to minimize biases in your early product discovery calls, Ronnie's experience as an introvert who needed to develop more extroverted traits, and the frameworks that helped him find his voice. We also talk about how to grow your product for a specific audience, gain more users, expand your product, and more. Let me introduce you to Ronnie Dover and Digma. Ronnie is a holistic developer and builder with a passion for development processes and practices. Ronnie was afflicted by an acute product manager developer split personality disorder that was never treated. Currently, he's CTO and co-founder of Digma. Digma is an IDE plugin for code runtime AI analysis to help accelerate development in complex code bases. He's a big believer in evidence-based development and a proponent of continuous feedback in all aspects of software engineering. Enjoy our conversation with Ronnie Dover. To begin our conversation, Ronnie, just wanted to say welcome. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, how are you doing this morning? What's been going on? Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday, everyone. And uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, so far, uh, day, day is going very well. Before diving into your founder journey a little bit, I was wondering if you can help us get a little more context into the origin story behind Digma AI, what you all are doing, and how it all came to be. And then I know Jerry have a lot of questions about your journey stepping into that role as a founder. By now, I had the opportunity to talk to quite a few founders and entrepreneurs and kind of hear uh, about their journey and their perspective. They kind of fall into two categories. One category is people who love the idea of entrepreneurship and building something and maybe, you know, uh, making money. And they're kind of very hard fixed on how do I find a problem that I can solve that will be worth something. And there are a particular uh, class of entrepreneurs and and they're doing ideation and different kind of market checks and, and things like that. My personal journey could not have been more different. I didn't start kind of, hey, I want to build a company or I want to create, uh, let me find some problem I can solve. It was more of an evolution of my kind of personal career journey as a developer. I was noticing certain things around me uh, were missing. And then there came kind of this internal drive to complete the picture. Um, And in in the case of Digma, it was basically data. Um, I, I love data. I think data is useful. I'm very skeptic in my approach, very data driven, even as a developer. And one thing that was driving me nuts was just how unscientific some of what we were doing as quote unquote engineers seemed to be. So, uh, you know, I was working in development teams and one of the characteristics or trends in the last kind of several years is continuous deployment and releasing faster and more. And I was talking to developers and trying to understand exactly what they know about 
what they were doing. So they're pushing features into production. Is anybody using those features? Are they improving things? You just rolled out this major upgrade. Did it work? You know, the, these are things that are, it's, they sound trivial, right? Like, of course, you would know the answer to them. But somehow in this rat race and, and process that we created for development, it's always forward. So when that developer was done, I don't know, refactoring the cache or doing some other important feature and deploying it into production, his Nest next step would be, I'm going to take on the next feature. And there was kind of zero flow of feedback back into the process. And whenever I tried to bend the process to accommodate for feedback, it failed for multiple reasons. But most of them were that it required a lot of cognitive effort from the developers to do that. It was kind of fishing for trouble and different dashboards for no good reason. Uh, kind of like testing. Uh, you know, we, we as developers, we used to hate doing tests and then they became continuous and then there, there was no more question. They just happened automatically. So making that feedback something that can help us develop better was something that became very clear to me was a kind of a missing component in that release cycle. And, you know, you can look at those, all of those infinite loops, diagrams, the infinity sign, the infamous uh, by now uh, infinity sign of the DevOps loop. There's always an arrow back. It actually says continuous feedback in some of the diagrams, but somehow there are no tools attached to it because it's not, it, it didn't seem as important or sexy as, you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment. But in my mind, it's even more crucial. So this was kind of what I've been noticing. I thought releasing faster isn't just throwing features over the fence at a higher velocity. It's, it's something a bit more than that. And this is what kind of got me to start working on Digma. And uh, I've been doing that for the past uh, year and a half almost. Fantastic. I, I love the the story of like the compulsion to fill the gaps of the, the world that you were observing. And the moment that you shared I'm trying to bend the feedback process uh, or bend the development process to incorporate more feedback and experiencing so much resistance. That story is one that that we've heard so many different times about like the challenges of changing a process and inherent and like in, structurally, the process is incentivized and set up in a certain way for certain outcomes. And so to deviate from that just creates a whole different challenging problem. So uh, to hear about this story uh, is really exciting to hear it's kind of like focusing on the continuous feedback element. At the beginning of this, You'd mentioned the need to develop skills um, to go beyond being an introvert and develop skills of working with different types of folks. I was wondering if you'd tell a little bit more about like, like how did you like what extroverted traits or qualities have you had to develop in your journey? And how can somebody who maybe is is more of an introverted engineering leader pursuing the founder path develop those traits? There is no cookie jar answer. Uh, otherwise, it would be kind of in, in a book and everybody would read it and it would solve all, all of our problems. But I can talk about the approach that I think worked for me. For me, it was writing. It started with writing. So I was, uh, I am still pretty much in, consider myself an introvert, but there is such a thing as finding your voice. And when you find your voice, it makes it much easier to kind of start speaking more confidently and start communicating around your base ideas. And to me, it started with writing because I always liked writing. Uh, so I it just started by writing a few blog posts. I cannot, and by the way, it doesn't matter if it's uh, some people are better than, I don't know, video editing. Maybe they want to create a video. It doesn't need to feature them in the video. It just, it can maybe convey a message. Some other people are better at maybe podcasting and, and, and this is what, what they'll do. 
But I think it's a prerequisite, at least in my mind, before you start committing or as you start committing to something as big as starting a company or really creating a product, which is behind that, to be able to kind of distill your vision and ideas. And that process has to do with communication. So it has to do with two very important processes. One is being able to crystallize your thoughts and ideas in a way that really express what you're trying to do. So the first thing I did was create uh, a blog post. It was called uh, CICDCF, uh, the missing piece in the DevOps cycle. And it was all about everything I just said. It was about, oh, wow, there's so much data there. Why are we not using it? What's going on? How do I envision a better process? And it helped me because it's one of these things that, yeah, sure, it makes sense in your head. But until you go out and you write it or express it or communicate it in a very orderly way, you don't understand where the gaps are. And as you're writing your kind of a blog post or series or blog post or article, you'll start noticing uh, where the logic is a bit hazy, where you're not as confident. And these are the areas you want to explore. But it's not a lecture. You're not going out and educating people on what they need to do, because that would fail. Because as much as you think, you know, and I'll talk about, maybe I'll talk more later about kind of the things that I thought I knew in the beginning that turned out to be completely wrong. It's kind of like using that as your thesis and then starting to communicate around that and understanding how you need to improve it and where you got it wrong and where you got it right. And in order to do that, you have to communicate. There is no other way around it. And I look at it kind of like exercising, okay? I hate exercising, but I do it as a chore because otherwise, you know, I'll slowly... <laughs> Uh, degenerate uh, into uh, this uh, bulbous mass of uh, flesh that can't flex or move. So I'm, I'm making myself exercise, even though it's not like my favorite pastime. And in the same way, you need to make yourself communicate about your idea all the time. One, there are many things that I did wrong, and I'll be happy to talk about them uh, as well, because I think it's important. But one thing that we did right was understand that we need communication to be a part of the process. So it became mandatory, just like you would make yourself go to the gym twice a week, three times a week, and it kind of would be a structure. We had a goal. We need to talk to one user every day, every uh, day of the week, five days a week. Every time we would pick somebody we don't know that would be our target audience. In our, in our case, as a developer that we would contact on LinkedIn or other kind of platforms just to ask them if we can pick their brain about some topics. And we would go into that conversation to communicate. Now... It's like exercising a muscle. So you start and in the first conversations, you're embarrassed. You don't know what to say. Maybe if you're like me, not that uh, used to and kind of awkward in, in talking to people you don't know, you might kind of at, at first find it a bit daunting, but it will give you so much uh, and it will help you both from an anecdotal point of view so you know to reference examples and from a vision point of view where you can start testing out your assumptions and in my specific area or domain there is an even bigger issue because I am a developer so I am even more prone to the I know what the user needs 
bias because, hey, I'm the user, I'm a developer. Of course, I know what developers need. Of course, I know how to create uh, the perfect product. Why do I even need to talk to other developers? But then you talk to developers on a daily basis and you're immediately shocked and humbled by just how different people are, just how much your perspective as a developer is so different from other people's perspectives, how much there is a different categories of developers, how different programming languages and communities have a a lot of effect on how the user sees the world and how they see your product. So if there is kind of one key takeaway that I want every developer or every uh, entrepreneur to take from this call, is make communication first a chore, and then you'll start seeing it as an asset. It needs to be structured. You don't need to say, oh, maybe today we'll fit in a call. You know what, maybe we're busy, so uh, we'll postpone it for another day. It needs to be set in stone every day. What's our call for today? And I cannot emphasize how busy I've been in the last uh, year. I've been kind of taking the, the role of CTO, developing, doing product management, talking on conferences, writing blogs, doing a lot of different things. And it's very easy to leave that one aspect behind. But the, you, you'll just, everything else you'll do may be irrelevant if you don't integrate communication as a part of your process. Such a powerful perspective. I love the mantra, first a chore, then an asset. And that if you don't do this, then everything else you're doing may be irrelevant. Zooming out and taking that perspective on just the importance of operationalizing this type of communication. Jerry, I've got about three rabbit holes I could go down here, but it looks like you've got a couple on, on the top of your mind. Yeah, uh, I just wonder how long you've been doing the one conversation a day and how how do you involve the conversation? I think the conversation from the early ones are very different from the little, little ones. What are the things you're going to tweak each every time? So first of all, uh, we made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. You will make a lot of mistakes as well. It's a process. Uh, There is a book that actually my co-founder introduced me to that I wish I had uh, access to earlier called The Mom Test about how to structure your questions correctly to avoid kind of leading the witness because people... Even people you don't know uh, don't want to insult you. They want to uh, sometimes kind of make you feel good. So they will often be supportive of your ideas or say, oh, yeah, that looks like a nice idea, but not in a useful way for you to collect feedback. Making those conversations mandatory is, is a big step. But then as you approach these conversations, the next step is how not to fall into your biases. And your biases are there. If you want to hear something, you'll hear it. In fact, at a certain point of time, we decided, in addition to us, to hire uh, somebody from the outside that doesn't know us, that isn't a believer in what he do. And we sent him to talk to these people to see if he's hearing something different. And he did. <laughs> we, we found out that, you know, we, the, the things that we thought or assumed were important for developers were not important at all. I'll give you an example. When we got started, we thought, hey, the performance of the code, that's something really important, right? That's something every developer should care about. And as we talked to developers, we kind of led them on this path and the conversation where it was very easy for them to agree with that. But then looking at the problem more objectively, he found out, sure, developers kind of think about performance, but not that much. And they just view it as something that happens in production and then they fix it. And it's not a major concern for them. And this 
is something we did not anticipate. Even having all those conversations, it, it probably would have taken us quite a while to understand uh, that specific angle. And then when he explored more, he found that something else was troubling them that we did not think about, which is code complexity and how that affects your velocity and productivity and legacy and microservices and monolith and all of that. The second time uh, that I got a, a big kind of eye-opening experience, which is either try to use different methods to offset your biases. And the mom test is a great book to guide you on that. Or just use somebody objective, get somebody to talk to these uh, developers, you know, even take one call a week. That's not you. And see if they arrive at the same conclusions about their pains and about the solution and whether it is something that's really needed or whether it's something that they just find it easy to agree with you that they need. So just to, to clarify, so start off these conversations primarily driven by you and, and other folks on the team. At some point, then you made the shift to bring in an external party to validate some of the assumptions and the pain points. Are you still a part of that loop with that that external party involved? And what does that what does that loop look like? Oh, of course, of course. It's not it's not a handover. But you want to incorporate somebody objective into these conversations to offset my own biases. And again, take into account one of your biggest enemies is your own preconceptions coming into the product. It's both a big benefit and a big problem because... On the one hand, you, you didn't just start a company. You start to create this product because you're absolutely driven by how important it is and you're passionate about why it's needed and you have all of that positive energy and drive to develop it. But at the same time, you could be off a little bit. It doesn't mean that you know what you're doing is not important. It just means that you may need to take a slightly different direction or to think about it from a slightly different angle. And the more you're driven, the more you're prone to kind of miss out on that. And at the same time, you need to be driven. Otherwise, you won't move uh, anywhere with your product. So balancing it with additional perspectives, getting somebody who's objective to take another look at the data that you're collecting, have these conversations as well is extremely important. It's very easy, especially if you're very enthusiastic about your idea, to kind of lose yourself in those concepts. And I've seen many entrepreneurs in, in my area fall to that trap where they were so in love with what they were doing, which is great, right? You want to be in love with what you were doing, but to the point where they were kind of not seeing what reality was telling them. I feel like this is such an overlooked part of the journey, which is almost how to see and discover the truth. So you've mentioned one way for people to sort of check their assumptions and to avoid preconceptions. What other ways have you found to be helpful to avoid some of the preconceptions you've had coming in with your product and to accept that there's a difference or to understand that maybe there is a new kernel of truth that is is more important to follow down. Like, how do you wrestle with the dissonance between what your preconceptions are and what maybe the users of the product are, are asking for? The most important thing about biases is understanding that you can't offset a bias just by being aware of it. That's not going to work. Which is why the best way to offset it is to diversify the input th that you're getting. I mentioned getting somebody objective into the conversation. The other thing is talking to different types of people, talking to other entrepreneurs. Seek out the people who would not just compliment you. Like the best conversations I had were with people who were 
absolutely critical of what I was doing. Okay, there is something in us, and we see it like in the social networks and so on, where we seek to be surrounded with information that is kind of very wholesome and uh, supportive of our views and thinking. So if you had three conversations today and two of them were, oh my God, this is such a great idea, you're doing great, and they seem to energize you. And then the last conversation was, listen, this isn't going to work and this is why. That last conversation is the one you would usually ignore, but it's actually the most important one that you should be paying attention to, okay? There is no way that you have a conversation with somebody and, and he's saying critical and really important things and you end up not taking at least one or two things from what he said and making that into something that you know how to address or rethink and and get more people involved in that thought process. It's extremely important. I can't emphasize it enough. Sometimes, by the way, VCs can do that process, which is why I think working with VCs and getting their feedback is really important because they can think about other perspectives, maybe business perspectives, maybe other ways that they view your idea that are important. And th- sometimes it's just other people that tend to be more critical and you, you need to, to seek them out because they're the ones that are going to move your ideas forward, not the, the people who just congratulate you and kind of support you and give you uh, kind words. They, it's important, right? We all need some uh, positive energy in our life, but it's not the reason real input that we need. Uh, I definitely appreciate that note. Uh, in a moment of self-awareness, I am definitely the person who is going to be like, you're doing a great job. I'm going to pump oxygen into the flames. I'm probably not the person for the critical feedback. <laughs> that helps me understand at least my role in some of those conversations because I'm just excited that somebody is taking a swing because it takes so much, I think, for anybody just to make the decision to put themselves out there and to say that my idea is important. I'm I'm here to be the the oxygen and the momentum, but probably not the critical feedback to help, or that's the opportunity for me to develop. And Jerry knows this. That's a part of a lot of our conversations is I'm definitely more of the champion of accelerating of like, yes, this is a great idea. And the analyzing the viability of it is probably the part where we have more critical conversations, which is good. And, and you do need a balance, right? Uh, don't surround yourself with only negative thinking people who will just hammer at your ideas all day long because you'll slowly, uh, you know, lose uh, your your energies and, and, and eventually, you know, uh, give up. You need both, but a lot of times and there is kind of a positive feedback bias where we embrace everything positive we're given and tend to not give as much credence or importance to the negative feedback we receive. It's really crucial. I I remember I I was having a conversation with one uh, other entrepreneur and it was on a day that I got a lot of like great feedback. Yeah, this is awesome. And he said, you know what? Yeah, but this isn't going to work because your number one competitor is not anybody you just mentioned. It's just the attention span of the developers. They have so many tools. How are you going to get their attention span? And it was... Again, something that I could have said, oh, yeah, maybe he doesn't know what we're thinking, we're we're thinking communities, we know what we're doing. But then think about why did he say that? Does does he have experience? Did he actually go through this journey? And what can you take from this conversation? So, yeah, really important to, to listen to people and surround yourself with people. The other thing that will happen, and by the way, it's not just direct calls, it's going to conferences, for example, mm-hmm. and talking to just developers out there. It will 
test your assumptions in so many ways. Like we started off with thinking, yeah, we're talking about feedback and about using the data that observability provides to give developers more tools. Let's use the term observability and talk to developers about where they are on their observability journey and so on. And we went to a few conferences and we talked to developers and we told them, hey, guys, where are you on your observability journey? And the number one response we got was, what is observability? And immediately we saw that, oh my God, how is that possible? And how did we not hear that from everybody else we talked to on LinkedIn so far? Well, guess what? The people who answer you on LinkedIn are match a specific profile and they're maybe more uh, technological. They're maybe more interested in tools. They Just like they talk to you, they may want to talk to other vendors and they're not the same profile as maybe the majority of the developers that you meet in the conference. So again, diversify your interactions, get as many face-to-face interactions as possible and also measure what you're seeing. So the first conference we went to, we used specific uh, messaging and the responses we got were, wow, that, that looks really neat. Now, one can take that response and say, yeah, we made it. We made a, a tool that developers thinks is neat. But later we improved our messaging and in the latest conference we went to, it was, how can I try it? Where's the link? How do I download it? And then you understand that there is something to be said of commitment. If there isn't any commitment, then words are very easy to kind of give away. It's, you don't lose anything by saying something nice. So measure uh, these responses. Sometimes it's easier to measure because you're using analytics and, and you know, you're tracking conversion rate on your website. Uh, but sometimes it's something that you feel. Uh, just by interacting with people. And you can iterate on so many different types of messaging when you do face-to-face interaction, let's say at a conference, uh, than by doing A-B testing on your website and it's not enough data and it takes a lot of time. So uh, it all comes back to maximizing interaction and exercising your um, uh, communication muscles, uh, which in my case, I needed, I needed a lot of, uh, of exercise to really uh, feel comfortable uh, having these conversations. I love using the commitment as the measurement of success for your message. Like I'm almost imagining just a simple like speedometer meter of like, you know, red is like mm, not interested. Yellow is like, that's neat. Green is how can I try it? And using how can I try it as the metric of success, I think is is such just a simple distinction just to understand like traction and interest. I have so many questions more, Ronnie, about this element of communicating to developers and understanding interest and like competing with the attention span of, of developers. So like in these conversations, like what were some of the things that developers ended up being most concerned about that ended up being like a big differentiator for for the product? As you mentioned, like the attention span was like the, the ins- kernel of insight you got from that one person at these conferences when they were like, I don't know what observability is. Like, how did that then shape how you focus in terms of sales, marketing, messaging and communication like that? I really believe in being holistic and maybe a little bit cross-disciplinary in the things that you learn. So there is one thing that I learned as a developer and maybe a product manager at times uh, that really applies to uh, developing your product uh, as well as on the company level. And that is when you write user interfaces, 
the more generic you try to make everything, or even when you write business logic, the more reusable and generic uh, you make it, the less sometimes it's effective to solve a particular problem and the more work you kind of need to pour into it until it sometimes become this transformer where there's so many moving parts that it's not very use case specific. And I found out in a similar way that when you start working on a product and you want to address your users, the more generic you try to be, the less attention you're going to get. So I'll give you an example. You go into a room and you say, hey, I have this tool for developers. So maybe 10 people will kind of look your way and they'll continue. Now, let's say you go into that same room and you say, hey, guys, I have a tool for Java developers. What will happen then is that you'll get maybe the same amount of users looking your way, but this time three people will actually go and see what's going on at your booth. Then let's say you say, I have a tool for Java developers who also use Spring. At that moment, you'll actually see 10 people show up at your booth and check it out because it applies to specific thing that they're doing. So the more focused you are in your target audience, in what the product does, in the value proposition, the more influence you can exert in a very focused way to get attention. So we started off, again, making a mistake of saying, yeah, we'll, we'll support a bunch of languages. And we were very opportunistic. This guy was interested. Okay, we'll add Python. This guy was interested. Okay, we'll add Golang. But eventually it had two results. A, we weren't quite reaching the threshold required to reduce friction and increase value to the extent that we wanted in all of those languages. We didn't address key language-specific or domain-specific areas that we needed to address to provide the necessary value. And three, from a marketing perspective, it just didn't stick. It dissipated. If you look at in my case, the developer market, you have specific communities for specific programming languages, and it takes a lot of effort just to get one. So instead of going after a big audience, I know sometimes kind of VCs will try to push you that way. They'll say, yeah, you need a platform. It needs to support all types of technologies. There, there's a lot of kind of uh, preachings around that, but it, they're right, but it's a matter of timing. And you need to start with a beachhead. And that beachhead needs to be as small as possible, okay? Take a specific, you know, the more specific you can make that problem. In my case, a specific uh, framework in a specific community, in a specific location. Take as many focus elements as you can to kind of make sure that you uh, are very targeted. And you'll find it much easier to get in touch with these people and communicate and start having that they're breaching the, the impediments that, that are preventing you from, from getting their attention span. So it doesn't work otherwise. So that's a key learning that we had where we, we learned that, as I knew from my programming experience, generic is nice, but use case specific is really much more effective. So we moved from supporting five languages to, in actuality, only looking at one. We looked at specific libraries and specific insights we can provide there. And we started reaching out to their communities and seeing kind of how can we get more users on board. And also, when you think about the beachhead, you think about it kind of from a product and domain perspective, but also from a user perspective. Like getting 10 users is different from getting 100 users, is different from getting 1,000 users, and so on. Get your first 10 users. That's the first thing you need to do. 
Why? Because if you don't have currently, right now, a user on your platform, you have no feedback. You don't know anything. Okay, you did your idea validation, you created a product until a user uses that product and tells you, oh my God, this is crap, or oh my God, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, You don't have any real perspective on what you've done. So get to 10 people. That sounds easy, right? It's not. 10 people who are actively using your product daily is not that easy in the beginning. Then get from 10 to 100. Then you start to use viral features and other other ways to expand. But this is, in a sense, the most important part of the journey. And it also shows you everything you thought about kind of onboarding and how kind of simple you thought it was. It's not simple. And users, you know, the more rope you give them, the more they'll somehow manage to get themselves into all sorts of complications and trouble. And they don't understand that this is a button or they click it and they have something else installed. And there's so many different ways to fail in the onboarding. And then later in, in being able to deliver that first value that it's, it's absolutely essential. And then all of that is worthless if you don't have good analytics inside your product. And if you don't know how to look at them. So I feel like in this conversation, we kind of went through different phases. At first, we, we talked about the idea and validating the idea and your assumptions and the product. And then as you build it, and then as you uh, have something, how do we get more people to use it? How do we get their feedback? And how do we measure uh, as much as possible? And by that point, at least my belief is if you have a product that has 100 advocates, it's kind of like that it's enough. If you have 100 people who are, you know, zealots, who, who love what you're doing, that are, uh, that, com- that are committed, then you've hit a nerve. Now you need to find a way to expand it. It's a different type of problem. And in general, when I look at, and I'm in a very specific product strategy, which is PLG, which means that You know, there are many other companies that are doing things top down and that's a different story. And actually, I have very little to say and contribute from my experience. But when you talk about PLG, I often look at it like kind of a safe lock that has three cylinders and each of them you need to crack. And these are kind of aligned with what we discussed in this call. So the first one is messaging. How do you get people interested? How do you get people to get to your website How did you crack the problem in a way that it resonates with folks that that your messaging works? This is that difference I was talking about between having a conference and having people say, this is neat, and having a conference and, and having people line up to sign up. The next lock is value is, okay, they installed your product. How do they, how do you get retention? How do you get them to actually uh, really enjoy and get value uh, out of your product and not uninstall it like the week later? This is the second lock to crack, and it's just as difficult as the first one. And then if you've cracked these two, then the next one is how do you expand? How do you get more users? How do you then expand to maybe the organization level, which is where specifically we uh, start getting money as well and for our product. So all of these three needs to be cracked. And and it's uh, and once you've realized that, then anything you do in the company needs to be aligned with one of these three cylinders. In fact, this is how I structured the backlog. <laughs> so there are features, even in the product, even in, in, in the software, 
that are meant to uh, message what the software does better. You know what? Uh, in the beginning, there was even no product. So you could just say, it plays well in a demo. <laughs> I can make a video of it and it looks good. It will attract more people. So this is the first uh, uh, cylinder of the lock. And then the second is giving that immediate value, making sure that they don't drop it right away. And this is where a lot of the, you know, I have many backlog items that say, Yes, after two weeks of data that we accumulate, we can use our machine learning models to say that there is a trend here. That's an awesome insight, but some users may not make it that far. So you need to really make sure that you you crack that second lock. And then the last one, also, uh, you have a lot of both marketing features, but also product features about uh, virality and expansion. Maybe I saw something in your code as I was working on mine using the, the Digma plugin and I want to send you an HTML page with the explanation of what I saw and next time you'll want to install or maybe it will have a button so you can get Digma yourself and continue your exploration. So different features that will allow you to expand your product. For audience who don't know PLG, uh, it's a product lab girls. It's really popular now and tapping to the mass developer. I'm not just a developer for this. It's a term in general, but for yeah. developer tools, it's very popular. Good marketing motion. You mentioned community a couple of times, have a very specific message and, and catering a specific audience. So how community interact with the PLG strategy? It's at the heart of it. But I think one thing that people maybe don't understand is that Community doesn't mean you build your own community. Building your own community takes time and it's not always viable. Like not every product needs a community. I am not a member of a Git community and an IDE community for my IDE and a Mac OS community. And I don't know, not everything needs its own community. It's better to join a community, to know the people in the community and to have interactions with it. And by the way, that to us was also a consideration in selecting our first beachhead because there are some programming communities that are very unorganized. There isn't one good way to reach them. It's scattered and far between. There aren't really good conferences that get a lot of people that you need. And you'll need to work much harder to market to them. And then other programming languages, they had user groups, they had meetups, they had this hierarchy of different communities that they were all talking to each other. A lot of uh, developers that you can start uh, interacting with and then eventually get more exposure to what you're doing. So again, I wouldn't advise anyone to kind of start a Discord or start a Slack group and say, hey guys, join me and count on that to be their marketing strategy because people will only join a community which will benefit them. Uh, that said, I've seen examples of companies that did do interesting things with that because they saw there was a gap. There was one example. Uh, there's a company, I, I won't mention their name, but they, they basically saw a gap in the fact that there was this new category called platform ops. And somehow a lot of DevOps people are starting to call themselves platform ops. It's just like before we had IT and then now every, every IT became DevOps. And then, yeah, every DevOps is becoming platform ops. But they saw that there is no good community for platform ops and people like talking about it. It kind of answers a specific need to join a community and say, yeah, I'm involved in platform ops and so on. And they created that community and it's a great success. They're getting a lot of traffic from it. They're doing a lot of activities and they found something that was missing. If you're doing a new DevOps tool, you're probably not going to create another platform app community. Maybe you'll want to join it. 
one fear that a lot of engineers and engineering leaders turned founders have communicated discomfort with is, you know, this fear of I don't want to be too pushy or salesy or markety as a founder and communicating with different potential customers. How do you balance like that in your communication with your potential customers? Let's say you're giving a talk uh, or you're submitting a CFP for a conference. It can't be about, yeah, I want to push this product. And then it's kind of shameless uh, advertisement. But there has to be a story. And you need to talk about the story about, in my specific example, Stigma is an implementation uh, related to the story of why we need continuous feedback. And that's a good story. And for every product, you can find a story. Let's say Sneak, it's why developers should care about security. So first of all, you need to have a story that's not related to your implementation or your specific product, but it's related to why do you believe it's, what is the pain? What are some other, other alternatives to solving? And speaking to that either in personal interactions and getting feedback about that in talks makes a lot of sense. And the way at least to introduce uh, yourself is being very personal about it. So don't come in as kind of, yeah, this I'm a company and I want to sell you X, Y, Z. It's more like, as we say, it, it also has the benefit of being true, uh, which is you're personally involved. So bring that into the equation. So when I give a talk, at a certain point in the talk, I say, well, let me tell you why I care about this topic so much. And let me tell you about my personal observability journey. And then I say, okay, yes. And and this is why I got started with this project called Digma. And this is why I am working on this tool. And this is my vision. And when you contextualize it like that, then it's not like you're pushing your product. You're talking about the problem at large. And then it's kind of like a circular logic. Uh, the reason that you care about these topics so much is also why you developed uh, this tool or this product that you're working on. And then the other thing that helps is instead of going out and pushing your product, just ask for feedback. People love giving feedback. People love giving uh, advice, ideas, being consulted as, in my case, senior developers. Sometimes they would even go on a call with you. Sometimes they would answer some questions, but leave, leave, give them several options depending on their kind of uh, how much they want to, to help or contribute or participate. So ask some questions if they are very engaged. By the way, select the right questions to ask, but that's another topic. And then uh, if they're engaged, invite them to have a, a call. Um, send them a video. Ask them what they think of the video. These are things that, that really uh, help and you know, they don't come off as pushy because you're you're basically asking their opinion. Fantastic. Ronnie, we have a couple of rapid fire questions to wrap up our conversation. First rapid fire question. What are you reading or listening to right now? Oh, well, that's that's an easy one because I just finished uh, the mom test and I am listening to some uh, podcasts, mostly history podcasts. Do you have a, a history podcast recommendation you want to throw out there? Well, I do. The only problem is that it's in Hebrew. So the recommendation would include A, learning to speak Hebrew, and then listening to the podcast, which might be a little bit. We're all about learning and growth here. So if there's a prerequisite to learn Hebrew, I mean, I think it's just in alignment. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's called making history. Next question. What's founder resources that have been most helpful? Building your network of other founders really instrumental, you know, have cold intros versus somebody who can introduce you makes a whole lot of difference. And then choose the right VCs that would help you and give you the support that you need. Some VCs 
will be easy to give you money, but then if you look at what they can actually help you with, it's not that much. We're very fortunate to have VCs that really care and help and, and have the resources and connections to help us. But it's really important to think about that and not just like how much money you're raising, especially at this uh, stage. How do you diffuse stress? I have multiple uh, uh, ways. Um, sometimes it's just reading or or watching something that's absolutely not mentally challenging just to help my uh, brain unwind at the end of the day. Um, and then my uh, the other thing that helps me is I'm a little bit of a board game geek. Playing board games is, uh, is really fun. Last question, Ronnie. Is there a quote or a mantra you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I'm not a big believer in quotes, I have to say. A lot of times people would just abuse it and, and use it to, to sound smart in a conversation. But uh, there is a quote that I tell my children a lot that I try to live by, which is actually, I think it's Michelle Obama, which is uh, when they go low, we go high or something like that. And it's something that has really been with me a lot. There's all sorts of interactions where people can become a little bit nasty or, or, you know, negative. And it's very easy to kind of get sucked into this uh, vortex of negativity. And it's kind of this uh, self-feeding loop of uh, I'm saying something negative, you're saying something even more negative. And being able to kind of say, OK, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to do the opposite uh, really helps. That I, I hope it helps my children and their interactions and, so, and social situations. They find themselves and I have to say that oftentimes, especially when you're managing a company, a lot of the interactions tend to be around personal stuff, ego stuff, and it's human nature, right? Uh, a lot of it is really about how do we interact with each other and how do we create the right type of atmosphere. So being able to react, that's one thing, but that's not what most companies are about. You'll go through stages when things are very negative, when, you know, sometimes it's kind of this manic depression between everything is awesome or, and oh my God, what was I thinking getting into it? And it's very important as you kind of, as a team, go through these interactions where everybody has points in time where they're a bit more negative. You find a way to kind of not get sucked into negativity, but try to find a way to offset it. A powerful way to close. Real quick, Ronnie, I wanted to rewind really fast. You mentioned board games. Do you have a board game you want to throw out there as a recommendation? Yes. So there is one board game that I like in particular. It's called New Angeles. It's not very well known, but uh, what I like about it is that it's very social. There's a lot of negotiation in it. The theme is basically you're a bunch. Uh, each player plays kind of a corporation in this topic world, and they need to make money by corruption. And at the same time, if the city becomes too corrupt, the feds come in and they kind of and everybody loses. So it's really this game theory about how can you, on the one hand, find ways to convince everybody that you, you should take a project and take some money on the side. And on the other hand, ma make sure the city doesn't fall into ruins completely. So I love it. It's, uh, it's creating a lot of great emergent stories when you play it. Ronnie, just want to say thank you. I was trying to think of a couple ways to sort of summarize our conversation. And, and pretty much the only the thing that came to my mind was like, this was like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, but like the introvert founder's guide to user interviews, marketing communication, product led growth and influencing and developing like different communication strategies. So just thank you for for being our guide to this world and, and sharing so many good different great stories and lessons. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. 
And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.community. And we'll see you next time.